The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome back to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what is going on in the world through the perspective and prism of our Catholic values and our Catholic beliefs. We look at some of the very, very topical issues that are going on around the world. And we kind of say, well, you know, as Catholics, as Christians, how do we look at them? And what do we analyze as the way we should respond to them? You know, how do we think about them? What perspective, what judgments do we make in our head intellectually, um, you know, even emotionally? Um, how do we react to them from our, you know, Catholic uh, perspective? And then what do we do about it? What are some of the actions we should take in light of what's going on in our Catholic values? So um, thank you for joining us this week on Just Love. Um, Hey, Tom, we are now in the Lenten season. So um, how was your Ash Wednesday? My Ash Wednesday was was good, Monsignor. I went down uh, to Mass and uh, I got got my ashes and um, I did the perfunctory Facebook post of me with my ashes and and got a lot of likes on it. But I'll tell you, Monsignor, I, I did reflect on this later. At Mass, one of the readings was about how we're told to go in our room and to pray in private and everything. Yeah. So I kind of felt after I did that on Facebook, I, I felt I probably didn't do the right thing. So I didn't know the last well, people did it too. <laughs> okay, so Tom, here's the here's here's the issue and the challenge we have all of the time. Okay. Now, we do have uh, that passage from the scripture, which is, you know, pretty clear about what that is all about. But in the gospel also, we have the passage which says, no one lights a lamp and hides it under a bushel. But ah. they a lampstand so that it gives light to others so that they might glorify your father. So depending on how you want to look at it, both of those are are part of our, you know, our our tradition, our sacred, sacred scripture. So I think uh, you have a you have a point. And then there's the other part of the point that is also real. That's that's a good point, Monsieur. Now I feel a little bit better, but I, I do have to say that seems to have become a tradition is a lot of times I'll notice uh, and, and I have a lot of friends who, you know, we either work with the church or around the church. So I notice there is a lot of that on Ash Wednesday. So it kind of is also edifying to either walk down the street, see people with ashes or to kind of look online and see people with ashes. So, you know, I will, I will say it makes you know how many, how many Christians and Catholics are out there when you see people walking around with ashes, that's for sure. Well, you certainly do. And um, uh, in the place where you went, were there a lot of other people there at the time you went? Act. I went to the 1230 mass and it was, packed to over to over overflowing people coming in the door and uh, not just uh not just people that i recognize from you know the community but you know people i think were just coming in so you you couldn't get a seat it was it was it was it was that packed uh so so i i for our listeners i kind of know where tom tom lives and all was it at the church of saint john the evangelist it was it was once here that's i would say that's where i went so it was and it was good to see because it was like young people it was people who work in the chancery building it was older folks because we live in a community where there's a lot of older people 
Um, but it was a real mix. And it, it was it was it was, again, edifying to see people back out again in, in church and to see church crowded. I mean, uh, you know, that was a nice thing to see, too. So I was pleased. OK, well, that is that that's good. You know, I would say share with our listeners the church I was at, which for those of you who know New York um, and some of you who are visitors, you may know Grand Central Station. Uh, and Grand Central Station is in the neighborhood where the parish of our Savior is, where I was. And, you know, Tom's experience is what I experienced. We had very, very uh, good crowds of people who were there uh, and, um, you know, very devout people who were coming up. Yeah, and again, always, you do sometimes get people who maybe don't know what they're doing or maybe who knows why they're there, but that's, you know, not too many, a few of them. So uh, the, um, uh, but so I'm glad we've gotten off to a good, uh, a good, good Glenn. You know, Tom, let's now talk about some of the things that are a little bit really, really problematic in our world. And and I mean, you know, uh, just the disaster of the earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria oh, a week or more ago, and the number of people who were killed. So I'm delighted that we're going to have David Lilly speak with us from the uh, Syrian American uh, Medical uh, Society to talk about it because he himself was there so that we can um, get a little bit of an understanding about what is going on there. Uh, David Lilly, welcome to Just Love. Thank you for being with us. Hello, good to be here, Monsignor. Okay. Um, so, um, would you tell our listeners a little bit about the um, the Syrian American Medical Association? Sure. The Syrian American Medical Society started years ago. As hey, a- David, can I can I ask you? Are you on some type of uh, speaker device, or are you on? Uh, how are you connecting with us? I'm on AirPods. I could take them off if Please, speaker you, is better. Would you do that? Because yeah. I want to. I want to make sure our listeners can understand and and hear you. And it, it's a little bit gobbled because of that. So I want to make sure we our listeners get the full benefit of your expertise. Let me just hold on one second. Let me go. Oh, that's much better. Much better. We can hear you more clearly now. So this is David Lilly, who is the executive director of the Syrian American Medical Society. So give all this, tell us a little bit about the Syrian American Medical Society and their mission and their work. Thanks. It's great to be here. The heart of our work is in Syria, as uh, as stated in our name. We provide about Six to 7,000 medical services a day in Syria, mostly to the displaced in, in northern Syria in, in opposition-controlled areas. We also work in the region, providing mainly health care to refugees and the displaced in Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, Iraq, even in Greece. And, and we've started work in Ukraine as well. So we have about 2,400 staff in Turkey and Syria alone. Uh, running nearly 40 medical centers and you know, clinics and hospitals, ambulatory systems, and uh, other specialty services. Uh, we've been doing it since the start of the war in Syria, which is nearly 12 years on now. Wow. Um, again, I know this is 
uh, so familiar to you. But for the sake of our listeners who may not uh, be as on top of this as you are, give us just a very brief history. You said it's a 12-year war. What is the war about and why has it been going on for 12 years? Just so that they have a little bit of context when we talk about the recent devastating earthquake. Sure. Many of the listeners may recall the Arab Spring when things started changing in the, in the Arab world. Uh, Tur- the, the first country that seemed to change its governance system was in, was in Tunisia. And then it rolled into Egypt and eventually into Syria. Uh, there was great resistance to uh, uh, demonstrations and, and demands of change to the government in Syria. It's ruled by, it has been ruled by or dominated by one family for decades and decades. Uh, that resistance led to armed conflict uh, that, that quickly spread throughout the country. And over the course of 12 years, it has really just devastated the country. And the U.S. government and European countries, the U.N., have put sanctions on, on the Syrian government. Uh, and uh, there are still opposition uh, groups fighting the government, primarily in the north. Uh, and that's where we work in, in opposition-controlled areas today. Okay. All right, David, thank you. That, was, that, that enlightened me a little bit uh, about the situation there. So now speak to us about the earthquake. And I believe you yourself was on the ground in that part of the world, were you not? Right. Just last week, I was I traveled to Turkey to meet with our staff who were providing first response to, to earthquake victims. Uh, and also in Syria, we immediately began providing services to the injured. Uh, the earthquake struck at four in the morning on February 6th, with, which meant that most people were in their homes both in the northwest corner of Syria and in the southern section of Turkey, along a fault line that really ran along the border between the two countries. And uh, many of the high-rises, many of the apartment buildings that people were in simply collapsed. There was one city called Antakya where uh, I understand that 80% of of, of the buildings are just wiped out. This is just over the border in Turkey. So there were many Syrian, Syrian refugees who were living there and their families, uh, but it just caused massive damage. Um, I visited an area along the border, uh, a town called uh, Gaziantep, which is right near the, the um, epicenter of the, of the huge earthquake that struck on February 6th. It just seemed like a ghost town because it's, it's really a town of, of high rises, mid-sized apartment buildings, office buildings, hotels, 2 million people had been there and the vast majority are gone because even the buildings that remain standing uh, aren't deemed actually safe or people who had been tenants in them don't uh, you know, fear that another jolt, a tremor, an aftershock could bring the whole thing down. So they are dispersed throughout Turkey and elsewhere right now, as is our staff who were based there. Um, I visited UN, United Nations offices and some of them were in office buildings that were rather you know, small, two, three stories. And as a result, the staff who were operating out of those buildings had their families move in with them. So literally, when I walked into these buildings, I would see, I, I recall seeing a family at UNICEF, the agency that works with children. There was a family living behind the reception desk as you walked into the building, children, women, mothers. It, it was just really odd, but this is the survival that 
you know, people have had to adjust to. Um, and in Northwest Syria, these folks who were, you know, survivors of this latest, uh, you know, this natural disaster had survived 12 years of war. Many of them had been displaced and displaced from advances in the war throughout the country. So they were very vulnerable to begin with. COVID two years ago, right now there's a cholera epidemic and then this hits. Uh, you just can't ima- underestimate the, the impact it's had on people. Wow. We're speaking with David Lilly, who is the executive director of the Syrian American Medical Society. And we're speaking about the devastating earthquake in Syria and, and in Turkey. So you say it was kind of on the board, the border between Syria and Turkey, which was the major place where the earthquake hit? That's right. I was, in fact, just before I, I spoke with, with you, I, I got off the phone with one of our colleagues, one of our main co- uh, coordinators in Syria. Uh, I had talked to him last week, Tuesday, as we were sending, we were on the border and, and we're sending a group of uh, a dozen medical professionals from the United States into Syria to, to offer relief to, to, to our staff who had been working 24-7 and, and to provide some specialized care for those who needed it. And he was helping them across the border. And I, I said, Samer, what, what are you doing? Uh, why, why are you doing this? As I said, they're all survivors, but in particular, this gentleman, he had lost, he had just buried the 15th family member uh, wow. that day. And he said to me, I, I just, I need to work. This is what I need to do. And I just called him now to see how he and his, how, how his family and, and he were doing. He said they're still living in the garden. Uh, he's living in a garden of some family member. His his family perished. They were all living in one apartment building on a, just on the Turkish side of the border and, and the building collapsed. Uh, now they're living in a garden and it gets down into the 30s at night. It's still very cold. The night of the earthquake, the night after the earthquake, all of our staff, everybody in, in Syria and, in the, you know, along that border were outside. They didn't dare go back into buildings that, that could collapse. And so it was snowing, it was freezing. And our staff, who were the, who are uh, the first responders, were living in cars, living outside in shelters, just trying to survive uh, and care for the families. And then the next day when the sun came up, they had to continue the, the, the humanitarian response. And, you know, to say that these folks are heroes is really an understatement. You know, there, there is one, you know, horrible tactic in this war by the government of Syria and Russia, which supports them in that they would attack schools and, and healthcare centers, our hospitals and other hospitals, as a, as a scare tactic to move the population and, and, and just simply to terrorize. And so since 2015, we've lost nearly 50 staff in these sorts of attacks on hospitals, if you can imagine. So our, our colleagues simply going to hospitals, to clinics, to do work, they're putting their lives at risk, if you could imagine. And we had called them heroes before. And now after this earthquake, after tending to the families, they went straight to the hospitals and started caring for the, the huge numbers of casualties, injuries that, that came into our facilities. Our hall, hallways were full and, and we tried to hurry to get additional medication, supplies and equipment into Syria to, to respond to the surge of, of patients. Uh, we also assessed some of our you know, key hospitals. We have eight big hospitals. Two were wiped, two were, one was wiped out, another one really is out of commission and we have to move 
incubators, babies out of these hospitals the day of the earthquake as, as things were unfolding. So David, let me ask you um, what I think may be a, a, a question that might be on our listener's mind. I mean, you talk about a 12-year war. You talk about some of the, um, you know, uh, awful humanitarian kind of or, or, or non-humanitarian tactics of the war of, of bombing schools and hospitals, those, those things. Has, has this disaster, um, I mean, you're going to use the wrong word, has it kind of ended the war for the time being? Or, and are people actually kind of working to deal with the humanitarian crisis? Or is it kind of business as usual? I think business as usual, fortunately, had been shaken shaken a bit as a result of this, though I've heard that uh, there have been some continued attacks in this area. Uh, Just prior to the war, every day I would read security reports of additional attacks uh, from, you know, in this remaining conflict zone, uh, which meant that there really was tear for kids uh, going to schools, uh, people trying to get medical care, just live the daily life. Uh, they had to do this while navigating the terror, the the aerial attacks, uh, the bombs, the just the, simply the insecurity. One thing that uh, really rattles people in conflict is they don't know well the the, the vast insecurity and the and the trauma f- that's faced by everybody. But it's the unknown. It's not knowing when this will end or what result will come. You know, uh, and I've seen this too with our staff, who we've fortunately been able to relocate temporarily. I met with them last week, and they asked, "So, what's the plan? What's next? You know, where where will we be?" And I said, "There, there, there can't be one plan because each of you will have to have your own plan. Each of you is is different." And I don't think that offers a lot of hope, but it's true what, you know, they just wanted something to cling on. They would, they're, they're looking for what's next, something that, uh, that, something that they can hold on to. And, and that's the toughest thing you, in situations like this, in conflict, and certainly in this disaster, the vast unknown. And so what I could offer, what little I could offer was an ear, just uh, listening uh, observing, sharing what I've seen, uh, and you know, talking with them in some cases, mourning with them, uh, and and what we can offer in our healthcare centers, I think more than just putting in stitches and and uh, you know um, uh, doing surgeries on, on on broken bones is trying to you know give people attention and listen, just give them the respect that they are due, um, provide dignified care and. Try to include them in everything that we are doing. Uh, just you know, remind them that that they are part of this greater humanity. Um, I, uh, I I I I don't you know I, I think um, so much of uh, the people who are involved in humanitarian relief situations like this. The the ten the dozen nearly dozen doctors that we had sent in from the U.S. last week. I, I found in their social media postings or in talks with them that yes, they felt gratified that they could mend bodies. But what um, what hit them the the most is just the the humility, uh, the, the the you know just humbled in the sight of these people um, who 
uh, where you know I, I think tried to I, I think gave so much to them uh, just their basic humanity. There was a, I recall a story of a seven year old girl that one of our doctors from Chicago had met. She had just lost her parents and and all her sisters in the rubble, and somehow she clawed and pushed her way out. Came to the hospital had multiple wounds. Uh, that was being cared for. And, and she smiled at this doctor who said, you know, in Arabic, how are you? And and she responded to him very politely, uncle, I'm okay. And he said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, I want to be a doctor so I can care for my parents and my sisters, really oblivious of, of what had happened. And it just struck these folks. You know, there was another very hardened doctor from Chicago who went in, orthopedic surgeon, and in this first afternoon, he, he was part of 20 procedures. And this is someone who was hardened, who had worked in besieged area, areas of Aleppo in the war and had just served in uh, Ukraine in frontline hospitals with Russia. And he, after the 20 procedures, dealing with people who had been crushed in rubbles and pulled from the rubble, uh, he said he had to just leave. He had to walk out and, and he cried. And he just uh, had to, you know, take a lot of, a few deep breaths and 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 pull himself together and this is someone who you know is a full-time surgeon in Chicago and has seen you know uh, some really tough things this just really impacted them so much um uh, i recall last week or the week before an ambassador had called me asking for an update and and i had you know i i i told him about you know some of our colleagues who had lost lost family members and I just, I put the phone on, on hold. I, I had to pull it together myself. I, and he, he was asking, Hey, are you still with me? <laughs> and, and really I, I wasn't, uh, you know, this person I had mentioned, I just called, he had been in my house here in, in DC and uh, I heard about his family, his kids uh, and his life. And, and these people, these 2,400 staff, these nearly, 50,000 who died, hundreds, hundreds of thousands who've injured. Each one is a family. Each one has this vast village connectedness with so many people. And, and they are all part of humanity. Uh, and each one is so, so important. And sometimes when you think of the individuals, uh, when it's just not, you know, the tens of thousands who've died or are injured, it, it really hits home. Well, David Lilly, the executive director of the Syrian American Medical Society, you know, thank you for everything the the society is doing, you're doing on the ground uh, there. You know, and as you, you, what you so poignantly pointed out to us is, you know, I can talk about uh, thousands dying and et cetera, but each one of those is an individual and they're usually part of a family. And the impact is just that. And you began to hint at it. You know, the headlines talk about, you know, maybe 37,000 killed or that number. But is there an estimate about how many people have been displaced from the area? Well, of the four and a half million in this area in, in northwest Syria, about, I would say, at least 1.5 million have been displaced uh, at one point, one point or another from from the conflict itself and, and now as i said just anecdotally 40 percent of our staff of the 2400 of our staff were displaced and i would imagine that number probably is a good estimate for those across the region affected by this earthquake you know if you look at a map um 
you know, there's not much difference between Northwest Syria and, and maybe Southeast or whatever it is, South Central yeah. Turkey. Um, is there is there a problem? Uh, the devastation was in both countries. I think there were there were more deaths in uh, on the Turkey side of the border because there were there were larger populations, more high rise apartments that came down, and and many of those who died on the Turkey side were Syrians who had fled the conflict as refugees, okay. and so so sadly that they had fled a conflict to, for better lives with their families, and and here they you know they had set up new lives, tried to get jobs, were able to put their kids in schools, and had some stability. And then this earthquake happened, and now they need to start all over again. Those who survived, some many with with without family members. Has the international community responded with humanitarian aid? The international community is responding. We receive uh, we we receive as an agency support from the United States government, from the U.S. State Department, from the U.S. Agency for International Development, which have stood with us for years and uh, and are standing with us now. Um, we're getting support from other big donors, but you know what is so uh, again humbling is the outpouring of support from just thousands and thousands of people who uh, want to do something, and uh, you know they are talking about it, sharing stories, um, and sending supplies, uh, and, and very importantly, um, sending cash donations, which which really helps. That helps us bring in more medications and supplies and helps us to rebuild and, and replace the broken medical equipment that was damaged. It, it helps us bring mental health services to our staff and the people affected in, in this area. Um, we want to do more with child protection activities. So many kids were lost parents or guardians, and, and we want to be able to do something for them as well. Um, we've started providing some temporary shelter with partners. Uh, we're giving out food baskets, just really whatever we can do in coordination with others who are on the ground, we're, we're trying to do. You know, you mentioned something, David, which is really pretty, pretty discouraging and pretty tragic. Uh, you mentioned protecting children. Isn't it tragically sometimes in disasters like this, people take advantage of the opportunity and people got to watch out for child trafficking and things things like that. Have In your visits, have you seen any of that kind of occurring? I agree with you 100%. This is the kind of situation where you have to be extremely careful. And, and we've re reiterated this with all of our staff, and we've trained on this for years and years, that uh, in the work that we do, particularly when you're distributing items, when there are people who have power over others in terms of uh, uh, distributing food packages or distributing shelter materials or distributing uh, other items to, to help those who, uh, who are most vulnerable. Uh, um, people can take advantage of it and they have. And so when we developed any projects, particularly on distributions of items for, for the most vulnerable, we include members of the communities, we include women, they have to be part of this and we need witnesses. We can't have one individual doing it. We need, we need, um, we need groups of people who can keep eyes on each other. Um, I think people mean well, but there's always some who try to take advantage of situations. And so we're very, very careful about that. Yeah, I mean, from our Catholic Christian perspective, while we see holiness as a goal, 
we know that on the journey, all of us are very human and sometimes sin and other failings do come in and we have to be on God to make sure that the most vulnerable do not uh, suffer from, from that. So, um, you know, David, one thing I want to say a word of thanks to you, um, you know, your organization does a tremendous amount of work. I'm glad we were able to speak about it. Um, but it's probably doesn't have as much recognition as like international organizations like UNICEF or maybe even the Red Cross, the Red Crescent. But what you've highlighted is you're on the ground and you're there. You were there before this disaster happened. You'll be there after you're working with local people. And so you have groups like the Syrian American Medical Society have a real critical role. Maybe I'm being wrong in the midst of the big guys who Mm. To really make a difference in communities' lives, so I just want to say thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. We we work with a lot of the big guys. In fact, uh, the big guys may have the money, but they they will work with us who are on the ground. Uh, all of our staff in Syria, all 2,300 are Syrians, and and almost all of the, you know, the vast the majority, I would say, have been displaced, have been infect, affected by the war, and now certainly by this earthquake. Uh, mm-hmm. We feel just such great pride in being able to stand with the most vulnerable, with the poor and the marginalized. As as the Jesuits, I went, you know, were instructed by in high school and the Salvatorians I I, I had as teachers in grade school in, in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, uh, instructed us and, and certainly my parents. Um, I, I think we all stand with the poor, with the, with the marginalized and, and seek justice and peace. We, we have a big effort in advocacy as well. By being on the ground, we see what is happening. We are witnesses to some of the worst things, chemical attacks, attacks on healthcare and in schools. And, and we try to magnify that with a bullhorn, letting the world know what's really going on and, and trying to seek justice. Well, David Lilly, thank you. Would you give our listeners a website or a place they can go to find out more about your work and if they want to be engaged in it, how they might do that? Sure. Anyone who would like to learn more information about what we're doing, they can Google the Syrian American Medical Society. They'll find our website and, and there's places where there where you can find out more about what we're doing and, and find ways to, to support us. David Lilly, executive director of the Syrian American Medical Society, who himself has been to the earthquake zone. And thank you for the wonderful work that uh the Medical Society is doing. Thank you for being with us on Just Love. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Boy, not a good situation. Just so much destruction, so much um, hurt, pain, damage. It always takes years and years to recover from it. And for families who lose people who are immediately impacted there may be a recovery that that doesn't ever happen given the losses that they have suffered. Um, but I'm glad that we were able to talk about it, understand a little bit more about it. Uh, Tom, with that, why don't we take a break? Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Join us. We'll be back in a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. You know, Tom, we are in the beginning of Lent. And, you know, we say just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. What it really does is it points out the three critical parts of our Lenten season. Um, Just loving another is the part of charity almsgiving, service, which is one of the Latin practices. Just love God, prayer, talking to God, listening to God, being in God's presence. That's also a a part of our Lenten season, critically. And just love yourself. Now, this may seem a little paradoxical, but sometimes we need to love ourselves by disciplining ourselves a little bit so that we can flourish and sacrificing some things does have us focus on ourselves, what our true needs are, and maybe some of the things that we have convinced ourselves, oh, we really need to go after, but maybe we don't. And so our kind of mantra, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, is really echoing very closely the three traditional practices of Lent, prayer, sacrifice, fasting, and um, and almsgiving. So uh, that's where we kind of uh, we, we kind of say that. So uh, let's kind of continue our conversation on another topic, which is pretty much on a lot of people's minds. It is the cost of things, particularly the cost of food, and how that impacts families. So I'm delighted that we have as our next guest, Dr. Jay Lillywhite, who is Assistant Dean of the Culture of Agriculture, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences at New Mexico State University. Dr. Lily White, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. Great. You want to give our listeners just a little sense of who they're hearing? They can't see you. I can see you on Zoom, but they can't see you. So give them a little bit of sense of whose voice they're hearing. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I am a professor of agricultural economics at New Mexico State University. I uh, grew up in northern Utah on on my grandfather's farm. Uh, Went back to the Midwest for a few years to get my education and then came back and moved to New Mexico State University where I've been here for 20 years. Uh, I have a small pecan orchard that uh, I live on. So I have agriculture in my blood. Ah, so, you know, I... In front of the church where I live, in front of Grand Central Station in New York, there is a two-by-two piece of turf, which has a tree growing out of it. That's about as close as I get to a farm. So, uh, although, parentheses, there's a lot of farming in New York State, but but we guys who hang out mostly in New York City, eh, it's, it's a few hours drive for us to get there. So so listen, if you don't mind, before we get into the serious topic of inflation, economics, 
food. Give our listeners who may be like me, we think a little tree growing in the street is is farming. Uh, give our, what was it like growing up on that farm in Northern York, Utah? You know, I, I'll give you, I, I kind of got there in a roundabout way. I, I was born in Southern California. Okay. My father passed away in a car accident when I was three years old. So Ooh. my mother moved back to be with her family, her, her parents. And uh, in a sense, I'm very grateful for that experience. I, I loved growing up on the farm and being around my, my extended family. Um, learned how to work at a very young age. So I was three years old when we moved there. And I can remember going out and thinning and weeding uh, sugar beets. We had a sugar beet factory not too far from our house. Uh, we raised sheep and cattle. Um, so just all around agriculture at that point. Uh, as I got into high school, then I started to milk cows for a neighbor. So I've been in production agriculture for uh, almost all my growing up years and then uh, came into it from a kind of a backdoor approach at the university where I get to teach about the economics and the business side of it. Ah, so so I'm I'm intrigued. Tell us about your pecan farm. Well, so so I like I told you, I have agriculture in my blood. I love right. being out uh, in the soil and in in the plants and animals. Um, so we had the opportunity to buy a small. It's only three acres, uh, about a hundred trees of pecans. Um, it's enough to keep me busy. That's a hundred. That's hundred and fifty units of 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 apartments in New York City. Don't take <laughs> Yes. So our, our small family lives on that three acres. So, yeah, no, it's, it's a it's a it's a good way to de-stress at the end of a long day. Good. So, Professor Lily White, what's going on with agriculture and inflation yesterday or earlier this week was Ash Wednesday. And I was at one of our Catholic charities food. Programs and we were distributing food to families who need it. And we had this whole area where we were giving out eggs. And as the people came up, they said, oh, I haven't been able to buy eggs in a while. We're delighted. I always hear eggs. What's going on with eggs? So eggs, there's always a supply and demand side to this from from the economic side. So, Oh, my God, an economist. I agree <laughs> that nightmares of supply, demand, curves, and all of that, but I'll, I'll listen. I promise I won't draw any graphs. Okay. Uh, so so uh, on the supply side, you have some issues with avian flu, and, and we've had some issues with birds uh, dying. And so we had that issue going on, and so your supply is cutting back. Uh, and then you have demand that, that's, in some cases, pent-up demand from uh, pandemics and people getting back to their diets that they had before. Um, regardless, uh, the eggs are there. They just become more expensive because we have fewer of them there. But um, that will straighten itself out, I think, over time. But it is certainly, if you talk to anybody about agriculture and food right now, eggs seems to be at the top of the list just because it's so visible. Yeah. But in general, I'm not raw. I mean, I live by myself in this church. And so I have to go out and I do some of the shopping and stuff in in the regular supermarket. And I just, you know, I haven't counted and measured everything, but it just seems to me that my dollars are going much, much less, much shorter than they used to. Is That's more than anecdotal, isn't it? Yeah. So for the last year, if you look year over year for the last year um, in January, uh, food inflation has gone up 10%, just over 10%. So if you were spending $100 for groceries 
Uh, a year ago, you're spending 110 today. And that varies by the food product. Obviously, eggs are, are much higher right now. Um, meats have seen some high increases uh, during the pandemic as well. So um, depending on what your diet looks like, it could be very significant. And um, so what are the what are the economic drivers of that? And I'll, I'll just throw you a, a softball question. So are the seeds more expensive? Uh, the inputs, yeah. So let me give you an example. In okay. New Mexico, um, our uh, sales went up 5% from, from the year before, but our input costs went up 6.4% from the farm side. So while food prices are going up, all the input prices, whatever they might be, um, seeds are one, uh, probably more important are fertilizers. Um, fertilizer, much of the fertilizer we use is nitrogen and it's a derivative of natural gas. So you've seen large increases in natural gas prices and that gets reflected into those fertilizer costs. So in in the in the food chain, to use a word, you have the farm, you have the trucking, you have the packet, you have the prepare, you have the farming, you have the preparing, you have the packeting, you have the selling, and rightly, everybody who's working on it needs a little bit of of they need some profit. They have to you know get by. So if you look at that so that the chain. Where is the the biggest impact in terms of of what's what's driving? If again, you know better than me, but it, some ways in my mind, it sticks that kind of inflation generally they say an eight percentage, which means that food is kind of doing a little bit worse in terms of inflation than general. And I could be wrong, so please correct me. But but so what's driving? inflation or the increased food costs? Yeah, so I'll just step back to the inflation. Overall, inflation is about 6.4%. Okay. And we just mentioned that food is 10.1%. So um, food is experiencing a higher in increase in the prices right now. I think fuel prices have been a large part of that. Um, we, we still rely on, on petroleum for much of the farming aspects, the large tractors, the transportation, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of times people think of food as just it's out on the on the farm, but really we've got to get it all the way through that supply chain. Right. So transporting that food to the manufacturers, the, the processors, and then to the, the food service, the restaurants, or to the final grocery stores, that fuel plays a, a big role in there. So there's there's that component. The fertilizer component's another big part of it. Uh, labor can be a part of it. So um We've had issues getting people who want to work, not just in agriculture. I think we had the great resignation is what they called it uh, during right. the pandemic. And so uh, labor prices have gone up a little bit too. And so all of those things are contributing to the prices that you're seeing at the grocery store or at the restaurant. You know, and this is the next question is not accusatory. It's kind of analytical. And, you know, sometimes I've heard, you know, consumers say, is, you know, whenever there's inflation and not merely around food, but about everything. Oh, you know, the big oil companies, they're just using it as an excuse to make more money. So when you look at at kind of what's going on in food and economics, are the prices going up because everybody's just keeping pace? Or are they kind of, you know, making a few more bucks because they're raising the prices more than the cost. And I don't know the answer, but yeah. you're a smart economist. So I'm asking you. you know, so some might, some might question that, <laughs> that claim, but uh, 
you know, from, and it maybe depends on where you're at in the supply chain. Um, yeah. Agriculture as a whole, production agriculture is in, in a perfectly competitive market. And so I can't raise my prices. I, I'm selling a commodity that's equal to the person who's selling their commodity down the road. So if I raise my prices, no one will buy it from me. So I really don't have a lot of control at the farm level to raise raise prices. You do see some farmers who will try to differentiate their product. So um, that may be, for an example, organic. And individuals may be willing to pay more for organic or for a different way that it's produced. Um, and that allows you to get a, a slightly higher price. But you're paying for that additional, again, in my mind, additional cost. Mm. Um, as you get to a point where maybe there's fewer suppliers in the market and it's not perfectly competitive, um, you could argue, some would argue that uh, those few firms are taking advantage of consumers by raising prices. I tend to, to not lean that way. I, I think for a lot of it, it's, they're just trying to keep up with the, the costs that they have and, and the pressures that they have. There's a lot of uh, moving parts in that food system. So uh, I, I, I personally don't like to say people are gouging or businesses are gouging consumers. I, I'm sure it happens in some cases, but overall, I think it's a pretty efficient market uh, and and it's it's related back to those costs that they're incurring. You know, Professor Louie, what you you just sparked something in me. I remember from four million years ago my economics classes. So do so again. Let me ask it in a way which is probably not a nice way to 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 ask it, but I'll ask it. You know, but so do the farmers get together and say, "Hey, listen, we know we're competitive, so we're all going to raise our prices so that." We all make more, and is the is monopolies, and how is that a part of it, or is that prohibited by some of the federal? Give, give us a little bit of that. Yeah, monopolies are prohibited and are governed unless there's something called a natural monopoly where it makes sense to have one provider. So sometimes you'll see utilities that are given special permission, and then they're regulated to to govern the prices. From a farm standpoint, if you look at the U.S., there's slightly over two million farms. So to try to collaborate with 2 million people would be next to impossible. Yeah. Um, now in a, in a particular local market, maybe that's, that's different, but on a national level, um, that's not going to happen. Um, right. You know, you might, as, as you move up that chain again, you have fewer players. So if you look at the number of food processors, that number is not 2 million. It, it shrinks down in terms of the, the total number right. grocery stores. If you look at the number of grocery stores, or at least the, the companies, uh, that own those grocery stores, those shrink down again. And you get into a case where we call it an oligopoly, where you have a few suppliers. Right. And in those cases, it is possible that they can uh, collaborate with each other and, and coordinate prices. It's illegal. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have heard of stories in the past where people have got caught and, and been fined. Um, I don't think it happens every day, but um, I'm not in that, in that regulatory business either. So Professor Jay Lillywhite, who is a professor, and he is also the assistant dean at the College of Agriculture, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences at New Mexico State University. Thanks so much for giving our listeners your expertise and the time here on Just Love. Really appreciate it, Professor Lily White. Thank you for having me on, and I apologize for the economics lessons. Well, no, I, I, I you know, and I, it wasn't too traumatic. <laughs> so uh, I hope sometime we'll, we'll, you'll come back and we can kind of talk about some other issues. I, I would appreciate that. God willing. Great. Okay. Uh, Tom, why don't we take a break? 
just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Uh, We talk about those things going on in the world. We talked about the devastating earthquake in Syria and Turkey this morning. And we talked about, while it doesn't seem as devastating, um, but it's a very tragic situation for those who are really struggling to make ends meet, inflation. And, you know, it's been said at times that inflation is the cruelest tax because it impacts those who are poorest the most. So we kind of spoke with um, Professor Lily White, about inflation and how it is impacting farm and and food. Uh, thinking of food, um, it's Lent. Fasting is is part of it. Um, Tom, have you? Um, how far along are you in terms of deciding 
what you're going to do for Lent? I'm I'm pretty far along, Monsieur. I I uh, I, I have started doing that fast of the social media. So when I go home at night, nine o'clock, I shut down the Instagram. I shut down the Facebook. Okay. So I'm not doing the food fast this year. I'm doing okay. doing that other fast. Okay. And, uh, and and I did start doing Operation Rice Bowl. So okay. um, so I have I have a little rice bowl. I actually um, CRS actually sent out rice bowls to the office. So there are rice bowls available here. Okay. <laughs> if anyone wants a rice bowl, so I have a rice bowl. I put one outside. So okay. uh, so I'm doing my own personal rice bowl, and uh, and I'm doing that. Um, prayer that come Holy Spirit prayer. So I'm trying to do that when I go through the doorways, you know, and, uh, and, and it's, it's, it, it, it keeps you, it's almost like a, a mindfulness kind of thing. You know, it's like walking in it, it. Is that the whole prayer? Just come Holy Spirit. Just come Holy Spirit. Like I just do when I walk through the door, I just say, okay, come Holy Spirit. So in other words, it's like when you're, you know, walking into wherever you're going, I, it's a way I was reading about it. I, I found it online. I just Googled some interesting, interesting prayers for Lent. And this was just what someone said, just before you go into a room, just call on the Holy Spirit to be, to be present with you when you go into wherever you go into, wherever it is. All right. I mean, you can't cheat, right? By just staying in, in your room. Correct. <laughs> well, okay. if I did that, I, uh, you know, Monsieur, you know, I live in a very tiny apartment. So if I did that, I'd be really crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's, well, you know, when you come to work, you just hide yourself in your office. <laughs> There's one come Holy Spirit on the way in, one come Holy Spirit on the on the way out. Exactly. Way out. So it's um no, exactly. actually I think those are pretty good. Now, was it last year that you did your non-shopping? Yes. Last year was the year I did my non-shopping. And basically what I did was I tried to calculate out um you, you know, because you know, I, I like to go out shopping on the weekends. Yeah. So what I do is like, I would go out and then I would just try to keep, if I saw a shirt I liked, you know, I would say, okay, well, that's like a $15, $20 shirt. So I wouldn't buy it. And then I would try to remember that so that by the end of Lent, I would just kind of donate that. And I wound up giving that to Catholic Relief Services too. So anyway, good good beginning to Lent. We'll talk more about it uh, next week. Hey, thank you so much for listening to us on Just Love. And, you know, if you want to learn more about what, is going on in Turkey and Syria, the relief efforts, go look at the website of the Syrian American uh, Medical Society. They're doing tremendous work on, on the ground. Thank you for being with us on Just Love. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.